Hey guys, we're so excited to announce that BC The Beatles is now the official podcast of Abbey Road on the River. Taking place over Memorial Day weekend, right outside of Louisville, Kentucky, Abbey Road on the River is a five-day Beatles-inspired music festival with seven stages, 50 bands, and over 250 concerts. This year, the headliners include Little River Band, our friend Tommy James, The Circle, plus former Wings guitarist Lawrence Juber, and so many more. Not to mention, we'll be there too. And yes, we will. Big, big things are in store. Come hang out with us for this super fun Beatle-filled music weekend. Right now, you can go to AROTR.com, click tickets, and enter our code APPY at checkout. You'll get $30 off either a three-day or five-day ultimate ticket to ride pass, which includes access to all the concerts, access to the VIP tent at the main stage where you have a restroom, phone charging, and water refill station, which is everything, right? You'll have a free hotel shuttle and one of my favorite things about Abbey Road River entrance to the midnight shows at the Radisson Hotel on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So much fun. Plus, you can bring a guest 21 or under for free. You'll get a matching ticket. And there's so much more, guys. Really, it's it's fabulous. More details are to come. But in the meantime, visit AROTR.com for more information. Enter the code ABBY at checkout. Don't miss out. We'll see you there. See ya at Abbey Road on the River. Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles, 24-8. I'm Erica. And I'm Allison. And before we start, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. And please, if you're enjoying Because the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. And you can email us with your questions, comments, concerns, anything at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. How are you, Erica? What's going on? I'm good. It's the first primary of the year today, the day that we're recording. So um, yeah, let's get Trump. I'm just super excited about that. I can't believe we're like this close to another election. It seems like it went slow, but fast since 2016. I don't yeah, know. yeah. Hard, terrible things usually do, don't they? That's true. It's true. But you know what's not terrible, Erica? What's not terrible? Abbey Road on the River. It is not. Good segue. <laughs> We're so excited. And you heard our uh, our plug for at the top of the show, which we're doing every episode, you may have noticed. But please, please keep your eyes peeled. We're going to be announcing a lot of stuff in the coming months. And use our code ABBY, A-B-B-E-Y, to get some doll hairs off your package. And uh, come hang out with us. We want to hang out with you guys. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. Amazing. Memorial Day weekend. It's going to be super nice. Great weather. Lots of bands. Yes. For those of you who cannot make it, Abbey Road on the River just announced that they're doing one in September in Long Island. So if you're in the I Northeast, yeah, my dad's super excited. So. Oh my gosh, yes. That's right up your alley. I know, I know. It's right in my neighborhood. But come to the one in Louisville. I think that's the big one. That's the huge one. And that's the one we'll definitely be at. But if you can't make it to that, there's more Abbey Road on the River to go around, which is very exciting. Yes. And uh, last episode, we teased our next book club pick, but a lot has happened since then. We have some wheels in motion, and our next pick is really exciting. We're kind of waiting another beat to let you guys know the secret, but we can tell you that next book club episode, we'll have a very, very special guest, which is so exciting. Yes, it will be great. More on that coming up for sure. Yay. So let's see, what's uh, what's new in the world of the Beatles? I felt like the Beatles were pretty well represented, not only in this year's Oscars, but in the kind of the movies that were being um, nominated and were winning. So the first thing that I noticed, the biggest thing that I think everybody noticed was uh, singer Billie Eilish sang yesterday during the In Memoriam section at the Academy Awards last week. My feelings about Billie Eilish are very complex. I will save you all from having to hear them. She actually, I think, did a decent job with yesterday during that segment. I don't think it was a great choice for that section because it was kind of like, did she kill them? Why is she taking so much blame for all of these people dying in the past year? Like, oh, Jesus. There was just an incongruence there. It's like, okay, I did not whatever. think about that. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, I didn't think about that, but... It was funny because I was, ah, I just didn't appreciate her look during the uh, Kristen Wiig and Maya Rudolph 
uh, segment because I love them so much. Mm-hmm. I have been on Twitter sort of ranting about that. Um, got a lot of likes. So, hey, if you like my tweet, thank you. Um, but, you know, so when she comes out with a Beatles song, I was like, Jesus. But she did a great job, I thought, and Phineas, her brother on piano. But, uh, but yeah, it is an odd choice just overall. I feel like I remember, though, somebody a couple of years ago playing it on a cello or something during that segment, but I could be wrong. I think it's better better instrumentally, though, because, like, I don't know. I just kept getting caught up on, like, you said something wrong? Okay. But on another level, very cool because, I mean, Billie Eilish is, what? She's young. She's under 25, right? Like, she's... Oh, my. She's, like, in her teens. I think she's 17. Awesome. And she's a huge Beatles fan. You know, it's not like somebody told her to do this. She's influenced by them. She's creating art being influenced by the Beatles. And she's a third generation. So rock on. Yes, totally. And she's 18. Sorry. 18. Before uh, before we get added. Yeah, she's 18. But that's amazing. Yeah, totally. And who knows? Like some of her fans may have heard yesterday for the first time that way. And, and that's that's great. So good job, Billy, for that. Yeah, and speaking of movies, I also was super late to the party, but just saw Jojo Rabbit for the first time last week. Mm, I love it. Yes, such a good movie. Yeah, I know. It was so good. And the cherry on top of the movie was the fact that they opened the movie with the opening credits to the Beatles' Come Give Me Diner Hand, which is the German version they recorded of I Want to Hold Your Hand. Yes, so exciting. I felt like a big nerd because I was watching it with my roommate and I was singing along in the German words. To be fair, I took German in high school, but I was still like just completely, I'm a Beatles person. What can I say? Of course, I'm going to do that. I did not take German, but I did sing along, even though I only know it phonetically, but whatever. I was going to say. Awesome. <laughs> I think every, yeah, like most people listening could probably sing it phonetically, which I mean, no fault. That's great. Do it. Get down with your German Beatles self. Yeah. And they, they presented it really well because, you know, I want to hold your hand and Hitler and the Heil Hitler thing. And of course, it's like a dark comedy in the beginning, at least it's funny. And um, they really made the irony stand out. I feel like John Lennon, who was a big fan of a good Nazi joke, would have really appreciated this use. Oh, he would have loved it. Yeah. And another Beatles reference I noticed, I did not see the movie Marriage Story, um, just not interested, got divorced, that subject matter, no thank you. But I know it's supposed to be a great movie. Too soon, too soon. It's going to always be too soon. Um, but the clip they showed had the family and Sergeant Pepper uniforms. So what was going on with that? Oh, yeah. So I saw it and they were like Halloween costumes. And it's a whole like storyline about like how the father wasn't involved in the Halloween and typical drama that comes with divorce with children and that whole thing. But yeah, it was like, I think Scarlett Johansson, her sister, perhaps the kid and somebody else were the four Beatles. But yeah, when I saw it, I was like, oh, that's so rad. Like, I want one of those costumes so bad. They look really cool. In fact, mm-hmm. I saw I saw something similar on Instagram. Not really similar, but it was like Sgt. Pepper pajamas. You know how you can buy all that junk on Instagram and they always have those really? ads? Yeah, I didn't save the screenshot, but I'm going to find it. And if I find oh, it, damn. we're going to post it because it was, it was great. I need those. I really, I didn't know that was a thing. One in every oh, color. Hey, uh, if you make Sergeant Pepper pajamas, uh, email us at becausethebeatles at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, take some for free. Thanks. Please, okay. please do. So anyway, I didn't ask you how you were before because I wanted to ask you about it now. How are you doing? And um, what's going on coming what's up? What's going on with me? Yeah, oh. what's happening? Not a whole lot. You know, life's pretty boring at the moment. Uh, No really crazy, exciting plans. And also today's opposite day because I am so stoked, Erica, as you know, but maybe you guys don't know. I am on my way two days from now when we're recording to the UK. So excited. I love the UK so much. And I, I got a super cheap fare just on the spur of the moment. And I was like, Fuck it. Like, I'm just going to book it. Yeah. So I am spending some time in London and, of course, going to Liverpool. I could not go to the UK, you know, and, and not go to Liverpool. So um, to be honest, I am pretty stoked about this trip. I've been to Liverpool. I think this will be my fourth time. And they've all been really quick trips. I really need to go and take a substantial like week in Liverpool. But I, I will tell you, I'm like kind of overwhelmed because I've kind of packed my schedule and the thing is, with Liverpool, it's like, 
it's kind of a small big city. Like I sort of compare it to Cleveland where I'm from. It's like that sort of like industrial sort Mm -hmm. of like gritty, dirty, like, you know, people are real salt of the earth. Like I, and I love it. But surprisingly, with especially with the Beatles stuff, there's new things every time I go, and especially this time, because there's the new Strawberry Field Museum. Um, they reopened that, I believe, last year, the the grounds, and they built a museum and all that. Um, so I will be going there and going to the brand new, uh, I believe it's Magical Beatles Museum on Matthew Street, opened by the Best Family. Yes. Very excited to go there. Um, I'm going to the Casbah for the first time. I can't believe it's taken me this long to get to the Casbah. And I've got a whole bunch of other stuff. I'm going to the Beatles story, one of my favorite places. Um, And I'll tell you, I'm going to save something for my favorite thing. And it's like Beatles adjacent, but it kind of works. But it's something um, that I'm going to do in Liverpool. And then when I come back to London, I'm going to have probably the best experience of my entire life. I am so excited. I am like trying to have a nervous breakdown thinking about it. And what is this? Should I? I, I don't want to spoil it. I will put it on social media. Okay. So How about that? if you don't follow us on social media so far, <laughs> now is the time to do now it because you're going to see some crazy shit coming down. Yeah, yeah. I am going to be posting like crazy from Liverpool, from London, and probably talking to some really cool people. Um, I am going to do a a cavern tour. I'm going to go to show at the cavern on Sunday night. That would be the, I don't know, the uh, 16th, I believe. And yeah, so this whole week I'll be in Liverpool, London. Please follow us. Uh, It's going to be crazy. I'm really excited. I'm trying not to get exhausted thinking about it, but it'll be just magical. I'm so excited. This is going to be great. Even though the weather there is shit, but it's okay. How how shit, though? Well, I was talking to a friend in Liverpool, and she said that it's been cold and windy and hailing. So that's great. Oh, that's pretty shit, but more reason to stay inside at places like the Grapes. Exactly. Well, this particular friend and I, you might want to, maybe I'll be drunk posting on uh, our Insta, as the kids say. We're planning to do like a bit bit of a Beatles bar crawl. So pretty excited. And I've, you know, Erica, this might surprise you. I've only been to the grapes. I've never been to like the Jacaranda, never been to your crack. I've never been to the bar at the Philharmonic. Like I, you know, it's, it's, it's time for me to really like get my feet wet in that (laughs) arena. I can't wait to see the posts. Please, please, please follow us on social media. We're at BC the Beatles everywhere. And uh, yeah, we'll be posting on our story, on our feeds. Like as much as I can, I will post. I promise. Amazing. And uh, it's kind of a long plane ride. So what do you think you're going to listen to on the way? Maybe a new uh, sticking out of my back pocket (laughs) playlist from paulmccartney.com? Okay, so you had this as your favorite thing our last episode. Yes, I did. And I have some thoughts on February's playlist because, of course, as predict, it's very predictable, Paul, that they're all love themed, and he's got your classics like My Love and and some deeper tracks from you know I think there's one from McCartney Two or something on there, which is great. But like I noticed that there's a gaping hole in this playlist because he's got like something from like Flaming Pie. He's got he hits all kind of the good albums, but he doesn't hit Driving Rain, and mm. that really irked the shit out of me. Because okay, here's the thing: I know Heather Mills, blah 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 blah. Like, I get it. But I really feel like Your Loving Flame is, like, a great song. And I think some of some of the love songs on there are awesome. And I know they're written about Heather. I'm sure he was just like, nope, don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. And, you know, by the way, I, as you know, Erica, I will, def- I will defend Driving Rain till the day I die. Yes, like I, I But I, yeah, I was really disappointed. I thought maybe he would, you know, include some of uh, some of that period love song. You know, I'm looking at the song list and it's only 11 songs. I mean, it, one or two more could have gone on there and still kept the like biteable content thing that he's going for with this. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure if he put Your Loving Flame or something from Driving Rain on there, it would have like set off the internet. Like some level of Beatle fan would have caught on fire. Like it just would have... <laughs> created a whole tizzy um, with like Heather Mills and all that. But I tend to really like those songs, even though, you know, you can have an opinion about who they're about, but I like them. Well, we're coming up on a very important 20th anniversary of that album. 
Yes. Reissue it, Paul. He will. <laughs> Reissue it, I Universal. I think he'll get around to it. it. That would be a great time for him to sort of reframe that. Reframe the narrative. Era. Yeah, reframe the narrative. <laughs> reframe that era of his life. Because it is probably the most negative time that fans would think of about his career. Oh, definitely. And we've gotten requests to do an episode about Heather Mills. So if you feel, if you have an opinion on that, let us know. Um, you know, one thing that I would say is it wouldn't be like a, a roast situation. You know, I think Erica and I would both try to treat it with the dignity that, you know, of a historical event, you know, because that's what it is at this maybe, point. Maybe. <laughs> Okay, I speak for myself. <laughs> you would Jesus. treat it with the reverence for a historical event. I'm going to pull out those Daily Mail articles and trash the bitch. Oh, shit. Yeah, those are fucking unreal. I love those. <laughs> mm, the divorce. Uh, such crazy stuff in the Daily Mail. Mm. Oh, my God. Divorce of the century. But we'll mm. we'll get there. Whether it's we in will. conjunction with a 20th anniversary of Driving Rain episode or we save it all for itself. We'll get there. We'll, we'll figure it out. But yeah, so... Anyway, just wanted to bring up that uh, the gaping hole that I found in Paul's playlist. Well, on your way to London, you'll be listening to Driving Rain. Possibly. Yes. Quite possibly. <laughs> I mean, I might be trying to sleep to make up for the time difference, uh, but we'll see. I could fall asleep in Driving Rain and then have some really weird dreams. Yeah, where somebody is creepily whispering Heather in your head. No! <laughs> <laughs> okay, then I will not do that. <laughs> You've ruined it. Damn it. <laughs> Well, it's Valentine's Day, or almost, and so today we decided that we're going to celebrate John and Yoko. Yay! And this is the first time we've really talked about Yoko since we've started the podcast, which I'm actually yeah. surprised about because we are big fans. Yeah, we love Yoko, and you know, we had our lovely Linda episode, which we got so much, you know, really nice feedback on. Um, and we'll definitely do another one about Yoko herself. And she's such an interesting person, not even with the Beatles. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But I think she deserves a whole other podcast about her. But today, you know, we're going to talk about John and Yoko and how they met and kind of get into that Valentine's Day spirit with with this really significant Beatles couple. Just to mention this, I don't think we really need to say it, but this is a completely and totally Yoko hate-free episode. What we want to really talk about is the romance and the true love and the soulmatiness of John and Yoko and that really interesting time for both of them when they came together and started their life together. Obviously, it was super complex and we're going to break a little bit of that down. And, you know, of course, everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but, you know, we're just going to kind of uh, tell it from our perspective. So before we get into the relationship, we wanted to talk a little bit about Yoko's early life and her career and how she ended up to be in the place where she was, where she met John, because the two of them, they kind of had pathways that, that intersected to make them want to be together at this point in their lives. Yoko was born February 18th, 1933 in Tokyo. She was born to a wealthy intellectual and musical family. Her father was a banker, but before that, he was a classical pianist. She started her life in music. Uh, she started piano lessons at four. She also later in her life, she trained as a classical leader singer. Yeah, and I'm sure people don't realize like Yoko had this crazy musical background, but she was more, like you said, classically trained than, than John would be. Like oh, she yeah. could actually read music. She could, you know, and, and we'll talk about in a little bit that she inspired some Beatles songs that way. Yes. So for the first eight years of her life, Yoko lived in Tokyo. Then she lived in San Francisco. And then she moved back to Japan, then to New York City in 1940 and returned to Japan in 1941. So she was a very well-traveled kid. Yeah, kid of the world. But World War II changed her family's social status. Uh, the Tokyo bombings brought intense poverty and starvation to their lives for the first time and it though it was very short-lived in her and her family's life yoko has said that it really affected her it gave her an intense understanding of marginalized people and status and what it was like to be one of those people and she really felt like she walked with them 
After the war, the family stayed in the U.S., and they settled in Scarsdale, New York, where Yoko first enrolled at Sarah Lawrence University, which was the same as Linda. Isn't that weird? You know what? It's the first in a lot of parallels between Yoko and Linda, like the whole way through. Yeah. I think they have so much in common that people don't recognize, but it's it's eerie sometimes. Yoko's a few years older than Linda was, so there there were there was no overlap there, but most likely they knew some of the same people and professors. Oh, sure. And um, it was here that Yoko really came into her own as a as an artist. She met other bohemians, musicians, scholars, avant-garde people like Lamonte Young, who helped her set up her first performance space in the city, and uh, legendary composer John Cage, who was That's always, so badass. Yeah, always in and out of her life, a mentor to her. They worked on exhibits together. I love that. I love that she had an association with John Cage. Like that alone is is so cool. That's another thing that I think people who really hate on Yoko about her uh, her musical talents don't recognize was that maybe it's not the music that it's maybe it's not conventional Western music, but she was a musician. She is a musician through and through. Yeah. I mean, even her experimental stuff like that makes a lot more sense when you say she was associated with John Cage because it's like, yeah, absolutely. You know, they should have, God, they should have collabed kind of like John Cage and Lou Reed. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> so amazing. But uh, yeah, I mean, she really had this background. And I'm sure that was something that she and John connected with at some point. Was oh, yeah. This, yeah, this understanding of music as a language. And it wasn't that John was the musician and she was an artist. I think they really both felt like they were equals on both of those planes, really. Yeah, totally. Because John always wanted to do art. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But, you know, he obviously went to art college. He was an artist. He drew portraits and did like some freeform drawing and would do that with Yoko. And, and it just, yeah, they, they sort of connected in a bunch of different ways. Yeah, and an interesting crossover. Actually, John was an artist before he was a musician. Yoko was a musician before she was an artist. Ooh, eerie. That's like a Kennedy-Lincoln thing. Weird, right? <laughs> yeah, very Twilight zone <laughs> But as it happens to the best of us, sometimes we leave our careers for a man. And uh, oh, no, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not you. Some of us did. Has. Anyway. First, uh, in 1956, Yoko left New York City. She eloped with experimental composer Tochi Ichiyanagi and moved back to Japan for a few years. They were divorced a few years later. And then Yoko went on to marry American jazz musician Anthony Cox. And they had her first child, a daughter, Kyoko, a few years later. So she was always actually in and around musicians and musical life. And all three of the men that she married were musicians. Right. And of course, you know, Tony Cox would get a lot of flack later with the whole Kyoko issue. Um, you know, John grew to love Kyoko as a daughter and, and Beatles fans. Beatles fans have a strong reaction to Tony Cox as well. But perhaps we won't get in that today, but we will at some point. Yes. Focusing on the happier times. Exactly. <laughs> Valentine's Day, yes. etc. And when she was back in New York City with Tony Cox, she once again immersed herself into the experimental art world and became associated with the Flexus Group. And that was an avant-garde artist collective. Again, John Cage was involved in this and where some of her most important and well-known exhibits were born. Another thing I want to bring up that in her circle, Yoko was extremely revered and she was famous. John, I think, used to call her the most famous artist you've never heard of. And he was he was right about that in that in the early 60s, Yoko was super well known in experimental art circles. And she was known as the high priestess of the happening. What a cool fucking moniker. High praise. I'm going to steal that. The high That's going to be my new, like, if happening. we still had AIM screen names, that would be my new one. <laughs> <laughs> Is it too long for an Instagram handle? High priestess of the Ooh. happening. No, somebody try it. Let us know. <laughs> but it's super cool. So I, I mean, it. just think about in the daring and crazy world of the 1960s experimental art scene to be such an interesting artist that that's the name that you're known as. It's crazy. Not to mention, she's very like she's ahead of her time in a lot of ways because the early 60s, you know, you didn't really have so much crazy experimental performance art or the things she would do with like bagism and that kind of thing coming to the forefront quite yet. So that's really admirable that she was able to sort of like spearhead that movement. Yeah. And a lot of her art, I think probably because 
of the fact that she integrated music and performance and traditional art and pulled from classical influences from Buddhism, from Dada. And she used space. She used, you know, performance art and experimental spaces. So the high priestess of the happening, maybe a lot of that was because many of her works weren't traditional art pieces as a sense of a physical thing. They were happenings. They were either performance art or in many cases, and I think even on her current Twitter feed. Which I love. It's amazing, right? Yeah. Her pieces are sometimes just a series of instructions. Uh, You can not only in her Twitter feed that there are uh, like her book Grapefruit from 1964 and her work Cloud piece, um, which is really an invitation to see the world in a different way. Yeah, I think one of the best things about Yoko's art is it's very interactive. I remember I was in London a few years ago um, and I was just walking through Hyde Park and I cannot believe it, the, the kismetness of it, but I came upon the Serpentine Gallery uh, in Hyde Park and lo and behold, they had a Yoko retrospective. And oh, wow. I, I know. So I just happened upon it and I got to go in and, you know, it was just magnificent. You know, I'd loved Yoko's art before that, but I just have such a deep respect for it because having it all collected in one place and it invited us to write down our thoughts and, and you know, and they had like a maze kind of like glass box that we could walk through and experience things. And Yoko really is able to bring the viewer in in a whole different way. And, you know, she's so big on people contributing. I remember when she had a tree at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I think around the 20th anniversary of John's murder, and you were supposed to go in and write, I think, a dream or a wish on um, a piece of paper and hang it on the tree. And that thing was there for a while. Oh, yeah. Uh That's so lovely that she makes that kind of thing accessible. Because some people are like, oh, avant-garde art is so weird. It, It doesn't make sense to me. But I think Yoko really brought it to the people. She broke down any artificial boundaries that exist between art and artist. And she creates art wherever she goes and whatever she does. It doesn't even have to be a formal piece. As we said, it could be as simple as her Twitter feed. Her Twitter is amazing. She Every day there's something like so full of wisdom. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she really makes you think. And if you just get past the hatred from the 60s that was unfounded and steeped in racism. I was going to say pretty racist. Yeah, yeah, disgusting. You can really learn yep, a lot. Yep, yep. Anyway. <laughs> Another theme in her art was feminism. As we mentioned before, Yoko was always aware of the idea of marginalism and otherness since her experience with poverty during World War II, and many of her pieces aimed to shine a light on the plight of women. For example, 1964's cut piece was both performance art and a pioneering piece of feminist speech, because in this exhibit, she invited audience members to take turns cutting off her clothes using a pair of scissors while she just sat silently in the center of the room. I mean, Mm. think about what it would have been like to have been part of this, not only as a viewer, but as a participant and, you know, as somebody who was willing to do that, what that makes you think about, about women and about other people's space and about intrusion in others lives she didn't only just do this in 64 she did this later um and i remember it was probably maybe 10 years ago but i remember seeing photos of sean her son with john going up and cutting a piece of his mother's clothing off but so she's resurrected this since and i think it still holds a lot of resonance it's so brave i love it This was a huge influence, cut piece and many of the other works that not only invited the audience to participate in the art itself, but to think while they're making this art. She brought the audience into close contact with the artist, again, breaking down that barrier between performer and spectator, which was a very new concept at the time, you know, not just in the traditional art world or theater world, but even in the performance art world, this was new. This is still being heavily explored. I mean, she is really a pioneer. For example, modern day performance art icon Maria Abramovic performs a piece called The Artist is Present, and this was in 2010. And it was 736 hours, a silent piece where she sat immobile in the museum's atrium while spectators were invited to just take turns sitting opposite her. Marina Abramovich, she has a school. I mean, she's she's a little bit older now, and she's developing a whole new cadre of performance artists in this style. And I feel that all of this really comes back to what Yoko did as a pioneer here. 
It's incredible. And the last thing that I really want to mention about her art was that she, like we said, and I think this is key to her really melding with with John on a on an artistic level, was that she built an interdisciplinary community, especially in the early 60s. She opened her home to all kinds of other artists, dancers, composers, musicians, encouraged them to work together to create art. And that was really fundamental to her concept of what art was. And she herself was interdisciplinary as a classical pianist. And this was how she created art and lived her life with and without John. John, I think, always had that longing to just live artistically and that kind of thing. Because I think even early on in his life, that really freed him. Like art was his escape for a long time. And then it became the guitar and then it became the Beatles. And then it became, you know, just music and art in general. And Yoko, obviously, by opening her home to all these artists, was living it. Yeah, and if you think about John and John's evolution, I mean, he he was always this kind of experimental artist, rebel. You know, you think about some of, like, that... that news, books. Yeah, the, the early books, even the early, early, like, newspaper oh, thing right, that he Daily made. Powell. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was all this kind of subversive, blurring the lines about what was art, what is reality. And he did that with his music, but as he got more into having to be a beetle, I think he lost some of that in service to let's write a swimming pool kind of songs, which he, you know, he freely went into that and wanted it. But at the same time, I think around, you know, 1965, 1966, a lot of his unhappiness stemmed from the fact that he, he lost part of himself, that part of himself. I agree completely. I mean, I think, You know, and that's where we see kind of like the divide between John and Paul, and we can talk about that later, but it really kind of opened him up to maybe an outside influence. And of course, you know, as we've talked about, John and Yoko at this time in 66, 67, were kind of running in different circles, but they became aware of each other for a very unlikely source. (laughs) And that would be Paul McCartney. That would be Paul McCartney, (laughs) the man who kicked himself for five years later. Right. Her first contact with the member of the Beatles was when she visited Paul. She wanted to get a Lennon-McCartney song manuscript for a book John Cage is working on. Again, still, you know, partnering with John Cage. Uh, this book was I called, love it. I know. It's amazing. This book was called Notations. And Paul, who may have already been aware of her because he was the first one who really had an interest in the avant-garde, well, he didn't give her anything. Nice. Classic. But, yeah. But he referred her to John. <laughs> who thought might be interested. And he eventually sent her handwritten lyrics to the word for this project. So here's a thing. And I don't know if you've heard about this, Erica. No, this is new to me. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I stuck this in our our document. Um, But uh, so there's a rumor. Speaking of sticking it in something. There we go. There's a rumor that Paul had sex with Yoko and I don't know. I mean, I've read this a few different places. I tried to track it down today, the source of where I've heard this. I've heard it, yeah, like I said, a couple different times. But I found one source, which is the book McCartney by Christopher Sanford, which I haven't read, full disclosure. But he alludes to a time when Yoko had come over to Paul's house, presumably to ask about notations, um, maybe something to do with that. And they were, quote unquote, upstairs in Paul's house for a few hours. Um, mm. This is in Cavendish. So, And then they apparently came back downstairs and were very cuddly, which is such a weird image. I can't see Paul and Yoko being cuddly, but okay. No. Um, and I don't, I don't know. And the, the reason that Sanford gives in this book is that, you know, Paul wasn't always attracted to these conventionally beautiful women. And so Yoko would have been in his wheelhouse, which I think completely reduces the women that Paul loved to you know, just their physical appearance. Yeah, but that's super gross. I would say more of like Paul was attracted to women who had a lot going on for themselves. You know, Yoko at that point had a whole career as an artist. She had drive. She had, you know, a lot going for her as did Jane, as did Linda. Mm-hmm. You know, that may have attracted him. But again, I don't think this happened. <laughs> it's just too weird. How far into Paul's dirty weekend persona are we talking here? It's a little early. It's a little early for that. It's a little early. It's definitely early for the Dirty Weekend. But, you know, it's, I don't know, like, there's also a rumor that 
Yoko thought that Paul was in love with her, which is what set off like Paul's like pissiness later that she was in the studio and all that. And that he was jealous of John. And I, I even found something where Yoko's psychic wrote a book or something. And, and the psychic was talking about how she was thinking Mick Jagger was in love with her because he moved into the Dakota. It's, it's all very reductive of Yoko. And please, please, please take all this with several grains of salt because we just have to always frame this in the fact that people don't like Yoko. So I don't know what's true, what's not, but that's a rumor. That's a rumor that she and Paul uh, went to Bone Town, USA. That's an interesting rumor, and I like it. It's interesting. I Yeah, I'm interested to know more about it. Howard Stern said one time, I think on a show, Alec Baldwin was the guest, but he said that Paul and Yoko had boned. And Alec Baldwin was like, where did you hear that? And he said, Paul told me. Oh. And I was like, what? I don't know. I I don't know. So if you can confirm or deny that, let us know. I am super curious. Wow. I love it. I love it. Yeah. You know, it's funny. funny, And maybe this is reductive of Paul as well, but it seems like there's always a narrative around Paul being jealous of the other people John is close to. Always. Oh, yeah. We saw it last last episode with Stu. It's always he was always competitive for John's attention. He always wanted his approval. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, hmm. if anybody knows a good fanfic about this, too, we could. Hey, I'm here for it. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so John and Yoko first met a few months later on November 9th, 1966, the Indica Gallery in London, where she was preparing a conceptual art exhibit and they were introduced by gallery owner John Dunbar. And this is a scene that has been shown in many a biopic, including the first biopic I ever saw, which was called John and Yoko, A Love Story. I still have not seen that. Oh, my God. 1985. It's actually pretty good. Uh, (laughs) Well, as you will see in that and other biopics, John didn't really get the exhibit at first. Uh, It was very conceptual. And until he found the piece called Ceiling Painting slash Yes Painting, which had a ladder and a spyglass at the top. And when he climbed the ladder and you looked into it, you see the word yes. And according to the stories and the biopics, that piqued John's interest because he felt like so much art was negative at that time. And this felt so positive to him. Yeah, I think John has said to or, you know, said around the time that if it had said no, he would have walked her out the door. It seems like if that was a time when John was really looking for something, you know, just at the end of what he would have called his fat Elvis period, where he felt he was writing help, as as he said, a literal cry for help and was just very unhappy. And he was looking for that burst of positivity and he got it here. Mm, absolutely. And as serious as she seems to look a lot, especially in photographs, she had a great sense of humor and one that was very similar to John. And he also really found the humor in her exhibit, especially the hammer and nail exhibit where gallery goers were instructed to hammer a nail onto a wooden board, creating an art piece with the final number of nails that were hammered in at the end of the exhibit. Now, Erica, I have to stop you because I've always heard it was an apple, but is that folklore i think there was another thing that was that had an apple as well i think that there was a number of exhibits and our listeners please verify this for us because we're we're talking off the cuff here about this particular one with the apple but i'm pretty sure there was an apple yeah let's uh hashtag applegate let us know according to the (laughs) biopics though the hammer and nail definitely exists which are always true (laughs) yes always true As the story goes, John wanted to hammer a nail into this board, but the board was clean because the exhibit hadn't opened yet. It was pre-opening night, so Yoko stopped him. And the gallery owner, John Dunbar, asked her, don't you know who this is? He's a millionaire. He might buy it. To which Yoko supposedly said, well, she hadn't heard of the Beatles, but he could do it for five shillings. John's famous reply was, I'll give you an imaginary five shillings and hammer an imaginary nail in. Uh, Room shot. So, uh, (laughs) hyperbole, just teasing, yes, obviously. A lot of people say, oh, you know, she's such a bitch. Of course she knew who the Beatles were. Yes, and she did because she talked to Paul McCartney before she met John to try and get a piece of music for her art project with John Cage. So, yes, she did. It's interesting that, not to bring 
Heather Mills back up, but to make the comparison, because a lot of people have said that Heather did not know who the Beatles were before she met Paul. Of course she fucking did. Like everybody knows the Beatles. Like you're born knowing the Beatles. Of course, Yoko knew about the Beatles before she met John. I really think that's a part of urban folklore where it's like that evolved from something. I don't ever remember reading something from Yoko being like, I didn't know who the Beatles were. Like she was a part of pop culture. It just makes sense that she would. Yeah, I agree. Obviously, she knew. She spoke to Paul McCartney. She might have had sex with Paul McCartney. She might have. (laughs) (laughs) If you believe what you read. I haven't seen that biopic yet. Let's. Okay. New project. There we go. Donate to my Kickstarter. Oh, my God. Amazing. <laughs> the rewards are going to be out of this world. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> but you know you know what, though? No matter what woman associated with the Beatles did, either they were a groupie or they were, you know, a bitch saying they never heard of the Beatles before. It's one or the other. Pick one. Yep. It's like a Mad Lib, you know? Yep. Just put, put one in the space, whatever you feel like. Mm-hmm. So that's when they met. That's the famed first meeting. And after that, they they did not become an item after that. They just began corresponding, mostly talking about art. And Mm. then in September 1967, John actually sponsored Yoko's solo show at the Listen Gallery in London. Right. I mean, at one point, John tried to play Yoko off as a nuisance. I don't know if he was like feigning annoyance or he was actually annoyed, but he was obviously still married to Cynthia Yoko would call the house. She'd send letters. She would show up at the house randomly. And Cynthia was like, who the hell is this? And, you know, John would sort of wave her off and say, like, oh, she wants money, you know, for her quote unquote avant-garde bullshit. You know, he was sort of trying to downplay it. Who knows what he was actually thinking at the time? Obviously, John was no stranger to infidelity and he did not seem to have a huge problem with it. He wrote songs about it, for fuck's sake. Yup. But... He didn't seem to be enamored with Yoko in a romantic way until early 1968 when the Beatles were in Rishikesh meditating and writing songs for what would eventually become the White Album. And Cynthia was was there, um, but he Awkward. yeah, but he found that he couldn't stop thinking about Yoko, who would send her, him postcards, and she was on his mind. The song Julia, you know, which was mostly about his mother, but also included a reference to Yoko, Ocean Child Calls Me, as Ocean Child is the English translation of the name Yoko. Yeah, that's pretty blatant. Yeah. So he started getting real obsessed. He might not have been in the beginning, but but he got there. He got there. And I think, you know, if you think about his evolution and the songs that he was writing and the things that he was experimenting with, it just seems to follow that the more he felt like he was expanding his mind and his outlook, the more he was attracted to this very unconventional woman and her outlook. I agree with all of that. I think you hit the nail on the head, actually. The imaginary nail or the real nail? Ooh, nice. <laughs> I will give you five shillings uh, if I got to hand up. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, that's my John. <laughs> nice. Thank Love you. It. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> but things happen to go pretty quickly after that. And as the story goes, and this is not the happiest part of the story, but in May 1968, Cynthia was in Greece having an affair of her own, wasn't she? I was just going to say, yeah. I mean, we talk about John's infidelity. Cynthia was also seeing Magic Alex at the time. She was there with, yeah. And if you don't know who Magic Alex is, don't worry, we'll talk about him. But um, he was associated with the Beatles um, in a few different ways. But yeah, she was in Greece. I think she was there with a few different people. And yeah, she was having an affair, I believe. But she came home from that affair early. And um, Mm -hmm. in the meantime, John had invited Yoko to his house. They spent the night recording what would become the Two Virgins album. And after which he said they made love at dawn. In another famous story, when Cynthia returned home early from her vacation, she found Yoko wearing her bathrobe and drinking tea with John, who simply said, oh, hi. Seems about right. Mm -hmm. I I would believe that. (laughs) And that's been confirmed by a few different people, too, like how she sort of found out about the affair. Yeah. And that's that's awful. I mean, there's there's no excuse for that. I'm not making any excuse for that. We're just telling the story. But if you do Mm -hmm. look at John and John's development, this is a real turning point for him artistically, emotionally, and of course with the relationship, as in a way Cynthia and Yoko respectively represent the old and the new John, or maybe not even the old John, but the John that was, that the new John was trying to escape from. 
I mean, Cynthia was the hometown girl. She was rich. She was white. She was subservient. She got pregnant and he was had to marry her out of custom. I mean, he may have loved her and he certainly did early in the relationship. But partially because, you know, he was sexist and she was really malleable. He wanted her to look like Brigitte Bardot, which she didn't. So she completely transformed her appearance, dyed her hair, started wearing shorter skirts. You know, he wanted her to hide out while she was pregnant so fans wouldn't know about her. She did whatever he wanted to. She lived a life according to what he said to do. But eventually that life constrained John just as much as the strain of Beatlemania constrained John. And they, the two of them became linked in his mind. I think about this whole situation. And my first thought is like, these kids are babies. You know, John was 23 when Julian was born. Sin was only 24. It's like, they are still very young. And Cynthia, if you think about, they were brought up in the shadow of World War II. You know, I'm sure she was taught to be a good wife, to be, you know, to respect her husband and all that. And John sort of more or less took advantage of it. But I think he sort of felt like that was his place as the, the man. But I don't think John as a person ever really kind of fell into that stereotype. I think he was always looking for somebody who was more powerful and more influential and who could be a mother to him since he lost Julia. Oh, definitely true. And he just evidenced by the fact that he called Yoko mother later on in mother, their relationship. Yeah. That was his exactly. nickname for her. Totally. John, at that point, he was looking for a mother figure. He was looking for somebody who I think would give him permission to be what he thought was free. That's what Yoko represented. Freedom of expression, her appearance, her lifestyle. You know, he was gravitating to Yoko just as much as he was gravitating to psychedelics and new musical experiments. And Yoko opened him up to new worlds that he probably didn't even know how to access before meeting her. And people divide John's life at this point up until like before Sin, after Sin. And I hear it all the time, like, you know, would he have stayed with Sin if he hadn't met Yoko? And I don't know. I mean, it's all conjecture. Who can say? We weren't, we're, as, as much as we study the stuff and we love the stuff, it's like, we weren't there. We don't know what their dynamic was. John once said in 1974, quote unquote, it was said I never loved Sin. That's far from the truth. We were young, big-headed, and got into a physical relationship too soon. I agree. That's me saying that. Um, and, quote, unquote, perhaps if we took things slow, we would have made it. I know we would have made it. If they would have, I mean, that's John being, you know, very fantastical there. Who knows? But, yeah, I mean, we'll definitely have to do an episode about Sin, though, Erica. Oh, yeah. About this. She's an interesting character. She's a fascinating character. And, and of yeah. course, she was much more than this one-dimensional subservient wife character as well. There was plenty of nuance to her, and she was an incredible, powerful woman in her own right. Whether John and Sin were right for each other as life partners, well, I mean, that's up for debate. They were certainly mm -hmm. right for each other at the moment in those early days, and it was Definitely, he had a lot of love for her and a lot of beautiful music was created because of, of Cynthia in his life. People have this image of him being trapped by Cynthia because she got pregnant. I don't think that's the case at all. I think it was more the trappings of suburban, wealthy life that got to him more than having yeah. a, a per, you know, the person by his side. It could have been any person by his side. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think maybe the pregnancy scared him and having to have a shotgun wedding. But anyway, uh, this is about Yoko, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so the two of them got together. The two of them were partners in every sense of the word, especially in those early days. There's a lot of question about all of these so-called bad ways that Yoko's aesthetic influenced John. But none of them are bad, and many of them are good, and I think many of them also contribute to the wonderful things that even just mainstream Beatles fans love, regardless of whether they feel Yoko was an influence on them. John had already had this interest in avant-garde. He had an interest in avant-garde from his earliest days. I mean, what was Lewis Carroll if not avant-garde? What were the goons if not avant-garde? He always yeah, loved that absolutely. stuff. And I think what Yoko did was help him see the possibilities in his own world, in his own area, in his own creativity, reopen him up to what he could do. It helped him become more conceptual. It helped him move away from the mainstream that the Beatles had previously inhabited, encouraged him to develop an independent voice as a composer, as a musician, as an activist, as all kinds of things, as a feminist as he was in his later days. And that, that really created not only beautiful music like Imagine is just one of many of the songs. 
his activism is legendary and did a lot for the world. Totally. And I was thinking earlier today, you know, as we talk about Paul sticking on my back pocket playlist, Oh, Yoko is one of the most beautiful love songs. I and how and all these oh, insane songs, especially in the early days oh, yeah. and, you know, the Imagine album. And uh, it's it's just sublime, the stuff that he wrote about Yoko. And even if you think about Jealous Guy, he wrote it during the Reach Catch session. Yeah. He called it Child of Nature. And we actually talked about this in our Women on Women in the White album um, mm-hmm. episode last year. But Yoko heard the song and she called him on his bullshit. And she said, you know, this is, I love that. this is not an authentic version of you singing this song. These lyrics are not great. So he shelved You're not it. a fucking child of nature, John. No. Come on. And what did he write? <laughs> he wrote Jealous Guy, which is all about his own issues with machismo and with feminism and with probably with his relationship with Yoko, definitely with his relationship with Cynthia. Now that came from a real place. And that's a great song. Yes, that is a wonderful song. Child of Nature is nah nah <laughs> skip it yeah it's twee in all the wrong ways i agree that's mm-hmm. a great uh summation of that <laughs> where, where paul mccartney is twee in all the right ways yeah i mean i was thinking like yeah i compare that to like paul's uh you know mother nature's son yes <laughs> paul was meant to do that not john and i think another thing that john was meant to do that he had never really done up to this point was consider the effective participatory nature of art you know, intensity of Beatlemania was stifling and suffocating to the Beatles, as was said in A Hard Day's Night. John didn't say it, but he'd said similar things. So far, I've been in a train in a room, in a car in a room, in a room in a room. And that life was totally against what John, how John wanted to live. And so Yoko's style of art was a 180 degree turn from what that was this gated life that I think Cynthia did represent to him and was so frustrating to him. It was just something so new and so different and so freeing for him. Another thing was Yoko gave John an understanding of feminism and women's issues for the first time. I mean, John was not a feminist when he was a younger man. I mean, that was not the Liverpool way in the 50s. Yoko's sensitivity toward this issue and issues of other marginalized people really inspired John to see the world in a similar way. I think, too, I mean, I don't think he recognized himself as a feminist, but I think if you look at Julia, his mother, such a big influence on him, taught him music the first time. And so, I, and Mimi, I mean, Aunt Mimi, how can you put into words what a big influence she was on him and and her upbringing of him? So he recognized these powerful women in his life, the influence of women, the importance of women. But I think maybe his secret deep down feminism maybe was sort of tamped down but yoko gave him the license to explore that you know and made him see like yes women are important they obviously have contributed to your life and it's okay to like support that that's a great point his younger days he was raised almost entirely by women right they were such an influence and then when cynthia came along and when other girlfriends came along he felt that it was okay to treat them as less than than human in some ways. I think maybe he struggled with his own, like you said, machismo. And that must have been so hard for him. It's the first time I'm kind of thinking about this. That must have been so conflicting. Yeah, I'm sure it was. And you just had to act like you acted. I mean, he was very protective of himself and of being this tough guy. And, right. you know, Yoko in her very quiet way has incredible strength. And I'm sure it takes no shit. And, you know, he just had to, he had to see the world in a new way if he wanted to be with her. And he did. And I think it's it's also interesting that, you know, that's the song from John's solo career, Woman is the Nigger of the World, was based on something that Yoko had said frequently about the plight of women. What's great about that song is that it relates to every woman because at the base level, there's a, you know, the line in there is we make her paint her face and dance. Like every woman's put on makeup to impress a man. Mm -hmm. Come on. You know? And it's like, that speaks to that like universal principle of like, yeah, we as men are expecting a woman to like dress up for us, you know, and that's oppression. What an incredible thing to come from somebody like John Lennon. Right. Yeah. And I know people were offended by this. And again, that episode about the White Album, we discussed this at length about the type of feminism that is and whether it's still relevant today and et cetera. But still that it's it's amazing to just think about 
him coming out with a statement like that. Very shocking, but very prescient. And in many ways, it, it's still a song that has value oh, in totally. the space. Absolutely. And that was all because of Yoko. And not only, be- not just because of Yoko, but because John opened himself up to what Yoko was and consequently to what women could be. And I think he probably, like you said, reached back into his past and realized that his macho ways were not the correct way to be in the world. I agree. The final thing I just want to mention about influence was that her avant-garde tendencies influenced John, but so did her classical leanings. Don't forget, she was a classically trained pianist, a classically trained singer, and she incorporated that into her own art, and John absorbed that as well. Uh, My favorite example of that was the song Because was only born because John heard Yoko playing Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata on the piano and was thinking about those arpeggiated chords and in true Beatles fashion was thinking about how they might sound backwards. And thus the song Because and that amazing rich harmony was born. I mean, Yoko gets a lot of credit, rightly so, for some of the more, you know, for like, say, Revolution Number 9. I'm sure she had some sort of you know, credit for that, as did Paul's interest in the avant-garde, as we talked about but, you know, it's interesting that she actually inspired this very sort of classical piece with beautiful chords and beautiful melodies. And I think that's another way that a reexamination of Yoko is important because Paul was interested in the avant-garde. He was interested in before John, but because John was linked with Yoko and because that was her primary expression in the art world, everything that was beautiful was based on Lennon-McCartney. Everything that was unconventional Mm. and maybe not conventionally beautiful was blamed on Yoko. Yes, exactly. So this was a beautiful love story. There's so much more to talk about. So much more. Yeah. Yeah. We could, we'll definitely devote future episodes to John and Yoko. Obviously there's the whole seventies period. The end of John's life is very interesting with Yoko. We'll touch on that in the future. And clearly this was not a happily ever after story in the traditional sense. But I think if you look at it at the beginning and you look at the end, it most certainly was. Definitely. And, you know, like we said a million times this episode, many Beatles fans, many diehard, like died in the wool, like hardcore Beatles fans really hate Yoko. It doesn't make any sense to me or Erica. But I think if you sort of take their love story in context, it's like, oh, you can kind of see how they were sort of drawn to each other. I was at a fest once and we were watching Let It Be in that movie room they have and Mm -hmm. Yoko came out on the screen and some first gen white man actually pointed his finger gun at her every time she went came (gasps) on the stage like I couldn't even oh my god I couldn't even watch the movie anymore I I, like her hatred was so overwhelming that this guy started like making gun references towards John and Yoko while watching it like he couldn't even like you know, come on, get out of your head, man. This is like ridiculous. Wow, that's insane. Like, oh, I have so many things I want to say, but I'm just exasperated by that whole thing. That's it's, that's crazy. It's it's violent. It's racist. It's awful. And it's unfortunate. I, I feel like a lot of it has must come from the fact that for John, falling in love with Yoko didn't just mean falling out of love with Cynthia, but it kind of also meant falling out of love with Paul. Oh, yeah, right? I can see that. Definitely. I mean, John and Paul were a love story in their own way. And it wasn't just them The love was shared with all of the fans, you know, I mean, could you imagine like the visceral heartbreak that John moving on to Yoko would have brought on for a lot of fans, right? Kind of like Paul taking up with Linda. But with Yoko, I mean, there were two parts. I mean, first is that John was also changing. He was becoming more this avant-garde version of himself where Paul, you can still see 1961 Paul in Paul today, you know. But yeah. for John, I, you know, he was really transforming. Every single thing about him. Was totally. In right? his look, and his music, like everything. And of course, you see it's not John and Paul in pictures anymore. It's John and Yoko. She's with him all the time. And I can see how that would be off-putting to fans, totally. Yeah, and but he's yeah, starting to I, grow his hair out. Like, they're almost starting mm-hmm. to look like each other. Yes. And, you know, I can imagine that would be heartbreaking. And, you know, unfortunately for Yoko, you know, her artistry and her otherness was, they were bound up together and racism was just so much more casual and normalized back then. So, you know, you didn't just get to talk about how she was a slut like you did with Linda, but they got to hurl 
racism at this one woman. It was horrible. I, you know, I don't discount the fact that it hurt, but so many years later, I think it's really important to think about the toxic racism that is part of the story that fueled the hatred, name it and re-examine it, not only Yoko in relation to John, but in relation to all of us as a fandom. That is so important. Growing up, I never really thought of racism as part of the Yoko hate, but as I get older, it so is. It's indivisible. And it's, you know, it's, wow. It's, it's very powerful. And it's very powerful in how we judge John and Yoko as a couple. And more than that, artistic influences on each other and partners and, and parents and all of that. And Yoko later is a businesswoman and John's a house husband. Mm -hmm. it, it sort of touches all that and how we feel about it. Yeah. This is not only a story that we wanted to highlight because it's Valentine's Day and there was such great love there, but also because it's very important to talk about. Of course. And a great love. They face many great challenges. We'll talk later about the end of John's life and what may or may not have been happening in their relationship. But at this point, they were at the right place at the right time for each other, and they had a tremendous influence, obviously, on each other in so many different ways. Yes. So happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Happy Valentine's Day. Enjoy this beautiful story. And check out John and Yoko, A Love Story, the first biopic I ever saw, if you get a chance. I really need to do that. Mm -hmm. You do. Watch it hmm. on the plane. I will. We will conclude, as we do every episode, with our latest Beatles obsession. Erica, I will go first. Is that Please okay? Please do. Please do. What are you obsessed with? And I need, I'm dying to hear. I'm busting, dude. Okay. So that's why, that's why I sort of co-opted this thing. Because, okay, so there is an amazing concert going to take place in Liverpool on Monday the, 8th, the 17th. And... It features a lot of Mersey Beat bands, like members from the band. So Jerry, when Jerry and the Pacemakers is on the bill. Oh, my God. Mike Pender from The Searchers. <gasps> Billy Kinsley and Tony, uh, Terry Crane, I believe. Or no, wait, that's our guest. Terry uh, Crane? <laughs> Terry Crane. What? He's one of the, the Mersey Beats? No. But uh, the Mersey Beats, The Undertakers, like members from all these great Liverpool bands, uh, Swinging Blue Jeans are on the bill wow. playing with members of the Philharmonic. How amazing is that going to be? Oh, and my God. You're going to love this. They have a girl who's going to sing Scylla songs. <gasps> oh, my God. You have to film this. You have to put it on Instagram. Holy shit. Holy shit. Holy shit. Oh, my God. I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> and for some reason, this could be a Buddy Holly impersonator. I don't know. But I'm here for it. Okay. Plus a Beatles tribute band. So, yeah, girl. Got the very fucking last ticket for the show. Holy what? shit! What I'm night so is this? This is Monday. This is will be President's Day here in the U.S., but uh, it's Monday the seventeenth in Liverpool. Monday the seventeenth. If you have not followed our Instagram, follow <laughs> our time. Instagram. It will be there. <laughs> yes, it will. It oh will my be god. There. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm so excited. I was like, oh shit. Like I over the weekend I was sort of just checking, you know, I, I check Facebook events every once in a while to see like, hey, what's going on? And I checked it and I was like, oh, this is happening? Okay, yeah, I need to make sure I'm there no matter what. So I can't believe it. It was almost sold out. And as soon as I bought the ticket, it sold out. Oh, I'm so grateful. So glad I got the last ticket. It's actually a decent seat. So yay. Oh my God. Uh yeah. Anyways, so I, that's my thing I was teasing in the beginning, but I'm so excited. I can't wait. That's so ridiculous. It's, it's Beatles adjacent, but it's, it works. It's Liverpool. Like, right? could you be more Beatles adjacent though? Like it's literally Beatles adjacent. It's literally the bands that played alongside <laughs> the Beatles. Yes, exactly. So I am so excited and ah. uh, yeah, I oh, can't wait. I love that. I love that. I love that. Yay. Uh, I can't wait. Anyway. I'm going to stop my gushing, but Erica, what is your uh, Beatles obsession this, this episode? So my Beatles obsession and, you know, thinking about art and artists and Billie Eilish and Yoko and all of these people who create art in and around the Beatles community, I like to think about people who also do stuff like that. And one of the artists that I like, and it's a bit of a shameless plug because he happens to be my partner's cousin. This artist, his name is Morgan Jesse Lappin, and he's a collage artist. And I don't know if you've ever really seen like full-scale collage art, but it's amazing, like analog collage art. So he takes very old magazines and he cuts them together to create these massive works of art. It's just beautiful. But he also loves the Beatles, just like 
basically everybody I know, so it's wonderful. And he's created a couple of Beatles-related art projects uh, fairly recently, both in collage and also just musically, because uh, he's also a musician. He, he did a great cover of Let Him In. Whatever, I just love having Beatle people in my life. So um, totally. <laughs> his most recent thing was just something that I found so delightfully silly, maybe as a New Yorker, but it's just, it's, it's a parody of Let It Be called the, it's a t-shirt and it's called the Bagels and it's, it's, it looks like Let It Be and it's a bunch of bagels and it's got Beatle font and I just think it's so delightful, just makes me giggle every time I see it. And it makes me so happy in this world to see that artists are creating things that reference the Beatles, that are based on love for the Beatles, and that is the way we continue this fandom to me. So when I see Beatles art that really just makes me smile, I like to call it out. And this one is wearable, and it's on Etsy, and... I just wanted to call him out because, you know, keeping the Beatles community going. So I'll post a link to the the shirt because it will give you a giggle. And, um, you know, if you want to see some fantastic collage art, you can look up Brooklyn Collage Collective or Morgan Jesse Lappin. So, yeah, the bagels. You might see me wearing that shirt at Abbey Road in the River because I've got one. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, if I'm honest, it just makes me hungry. It does make me hungry, too. And in fact, I really want a bagel. If you go on the Etsy page, he did a photo shoot in the shirt in his local bagel shop with his bagel guy. (gasps) So like, it's just so it's so fucking cute. And it's really I love it. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That is cute. (laughs) I I do love that. And I love bagels. So it speaks to like all of my interests in one shirt. Yeah, I'm really hungry now, too. I think I'm going to eat a bagel. I think we need to go eat. <laughs> I think we should go eat. And go eat. you need to go, Pat, because you're going to go do some amazing freaking Liverpool things in London. <sighs> I things know. This week. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. Anyway, well, we're starving. So thanks for listening to Because the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> and please, as always, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening right now. Please, please, please. Give us a rating slash review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And very, very, very important because major Liverpool London Beatles content coming up. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We will be posting videos and so much more from this episode and beyond, especially in Liverpool and London, especially oh, yeah. this week. And remember, you can always email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, or just want to chat about the Fab Four, we are around 24-8. See you next time. Bye. Bye.